Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I have been reading lately. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. It has been a full year since I started this podcast, which is kind of incredible. Um, in order to celebrate a year of Backlog Books and try out something I've been thinking about for a while, this time I invited along a good friend to talk with me about a book that he loves. Jeremy, would you introduce yourself? <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy. <laughs> Great. He likes books. <laughs> I like this book a lot. No other books, just this <laughs> one. <laughs> a lot of sci-fi, but this is one of my favorites. This time we are talking about Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. Leviathan Wakes was published in 2011, but it's 10 years old. Wow. Our author, James S.A. Corey, does not exist. That's actually a pen name for two authors who co-write the series, Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. And Daniel Abraham's other works include the Dagger and the Coin series, and he has collaborated with George R.R. R. Martin. Ty Frank is apparently George R.R. R. Martin's assistant, which I guess explains the, the Martin quote on the front of the book. And Frank also created the World of the Expanse originally as a tabletop game setting, which is pretty cool. Both authors also work on the TV show The Expanse which is based on the series. And the book series won the Hugo Award for Best Series in 2020. Here's the summary. 200 years after migrating into space, humankind is in turmoil. When a reluctant ship's captain and a washed-up detective find themselves involved in the case of a missing girl, what they discover brings our solar system to the brink of civil war and exposes the greatest conspiracy in human history. Ooh. <laughs> Anyway, there's no stakes here, people. No stakes at all. Yeah, right. We like to keep our stakes low in sci-fi. So Leviathan Wakes begins in our world, but takes us 200-ish years into the future where humanity has made it out to the stars. That's actually incorrect. Humanity has not made it out to the stars. It just sounds more romantic when you say it that way. One of the themes is that they haven't and the consequences of that's in the later books. Well, we can talk about that a little mm. bit right now, actually. Because, I mean, it is a, it's something that's sort of covered in this book, that they are not, that they don't know what else there is. You know, they're on Mars yeah. and the moon, and they have um, a community in, living in the asteroid belt. But that's just our solar system. I forget because I'm not a science person, that I think the, the stars are, like, way out there and our sun is our star. <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I would make a point to say that we, really it's, we've colonized the solar system mm -hmm. because the lack of faster-than-light travel is very important to make the setting work. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the subplot of the Nauvoo, which is where the Mormons are actually taking an interstellar, right. an actual interstellar multi-generational journey they're going out there and their intention is to become the first mm -hmm. uh, people to truly make humanity an interstellar species <laughs> but that's kind of a subplot it is yeah a bit of a spoiler for said subplot uh, did you I, mention the whole it's fine it's I, like kind of a i don't mention the nauvoo at all because it is a subplot and it's it's I can't include everything, unfortunately. Yeah. That would just be me reading an audiobook, basically. Yeah, which, that's, uh... yeah that's the... It, yeah, because it, it's... Yeah. It's, <laughs> but but it is... So the, the, the thing... The thing that's important with the Nauvoo is that has consequences for the next eight books. Oh, okay. What happens around... That's not a one-shot thing. That comes back... And the whole theme of humanity trying to make it out to the stars mm -hmm. becomes a major theme. And mm -hmm. the consequences of that are... So it's kind of the... This book is really a huge setup for yeah. the next 
eight books and everything that happens in this book matters for the yeah. rest of the series. There's well, not a single word wasted. And that's good because there are a lot of words. Um, <laughs> it's a very long book. I do like that they they have a lot of foreshadowing and payoff just in this book itself. Um, they they mention like Phoebe Station like very early and then that comes back um, and like the the riot gear going missing and, and all this other stuff. So they do a lot of foreshadowing and building up just in this book. So it's cool that they have like plotted out this series so well that like they were able to in this first book include something and showcase something that continued to be important and showcase their themes. So. So Leviathan Wakes. Um, so when you're when you're reading sci-fi, it can sometimes be indistinguishable from fantasy. It's just it's technology fantasy instead of magic fantasy. But this book, the things they have are similar to what we already have, but are just like an upgraded version, like their little handsets or their spacesuits or Yeah, there's there's very little what you could really call magic, which in a lot of sci-fi, Star Trek being a great example. Oh yeah. Nobody knows how their engines work. Um or most of most of their technology is effectively indistinguishable from magic. Um so in a lot of regards you you could think of it as a fantasy setting. Uh yeah. with the expanse, the only real magic is they figured out how to make very good fusion reactors to power their spacecraft engines almost everything else is a really logical extension of technology we have now just if we kept engineering for 200 years how much better would it be right and and that's one of the things that that i love so much about it is it feels so real and lived in and plausible and a lot of other sci-fi just doesn't yeah. Uh, this feels like a very conceivable future for humanity. Yeah. At least technologically. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> sociopolitically, who knows? And and maybe this is, is not to say this is necessarily the future that we should strive to right. achieve, right. which is also one of the themes of the books. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Just just because you have technology doesn't mean you're you're going to do good things with it. It yeah, sure. It's it's tools and our use of tools, uh, regardless of how complicated or advanced they are, seems to never really change. And that's something that the authors seem very keen on. Yeah, it's like, hmm, I'm just thinking about Terry Pratchett. <laughs> There's like a, a Terry Pratchett line from Feet of Clay where Carrot is talking about how a sword is just a tool, you know, and what matters is who wields it. And mm. I, I think it's interesting that another part of these books is asking, like, what makes us human and what do we do that is human that, like, um, bonds all of us? Because all these people living on Mars and in the belt are, are very different and have very different cultures, but they are still human so it's interesting to think that using tools to hmm, wage war basically is like a human trait which kind of sucks yeah our our technology evolves faster than our culture and our morals uh, our, ethics. Our, our, our empathy <laughs> our empathy uh, we if you you know you unlock nuclear power, which you can use to generate electricity and power ships and uh, could power a lot of things. And, and what's the first thing we do with it? We blow people up with it. Sure. Um, and and so a lot of it is we're still just monkeys beating each other to death with sticks and stones. But then there's the difference that we're able to talk about it. Yeah. And at least think about that and ask, why do we do that? And what can we do to try to do that less mm -hmm. and, and direct that energy towards helping humanity as a whole rather than 
fighting amongst ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, not to get, okay, we will get back to the book in a second, I swear. But thinking about like Star Trek, because we mentioned Star Trek has like magic, basically. But a key part of Star Trek is also that humans are better just as a species. But also in Star Trek, you see humans who aren't better. And sometimes humans fail. But the point is always like reaching out and striving to do better and striving to help others do better. Yeah. And at least in Star Trek, the the canon is that there were some pretty horrifying wars (laughs) in this century. and (laughs) Not looking forward to those personally. (laughs) And they were... Almost destroyed the species, so potentially our our lust for combat was severely diminished after surviving that. Hopefully we don't actually <laughs> need to go through that in order to get to the Star Trek future that so many of us would really love to have. Yeah, but, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, to, to be clear, if I have to choose between... Uh, worldwide completely devastating warfare and uh in the future the expanse gives us well i'm not really sure in the long term what's going to be better yeah (laughs) but on uh... this side of it i think more people survive into the expanse than they do into the 24th century star trek (laughs) oh okay with that comforting thought let's talk about the story (laughs) 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 so leviathan wakes follows two characters holden and miller i sometimes get their names mixed up i'm sure jeremy will correct me if i get it wrong and so their storylines are very disparate but they converge and in the balance hangs the future of humanity no pressure you guys it's also i do like that um they're not your typical heroes Neither of them. They're reluctant heroes. They're they're reluctant heroes, but they're also like the everyman. Like Miller is the everyman belter and Holden is the everyman Arthur out in space, basically. Yeah, these are regular nobodies you would ever heard have. Just heard a couple of, of dudes and... doing their lives out in space and they happen upon like the worst thing ever. And, and they they're not looking for it. Yeah. So Holden is an Arthur working in the belt. He has a very strong sense of right and wrong. He believes there is always a right choice to make. And some more character building for him. He names his ship the... How do you pronounce this word? Rasanante. Rasanante, which is the name of Don Quixote's horse. So just a person who willingly names their ship after a story about tilting at windmills. Which is like... The futile, the futility of taking on an enormous quest that you don't really understand. And <laughs> when was Don Quixote? It was what the fifteenth oh, century. So yeah, he's referencing. A at, very at some, it's like a seven hundred year old book at at that. So, uh, so sixteen hundred, sixteen hundred. Yeah, so six six or seven hundred years old. So it's it's honestly impressive that uh, he's. He's aware of Don Quixote and has apparently read it. (laughs) So Holden and his crew become the only witnesses to two unexplainable attacks. A civilian ship and then a military ship that are blown to pieces for no apparent reason. And in a world where you're separated from the endless vacuum of space only by the thin wall of your spaceship, it's a big deal to attack someone else's ship for no reason like if there's war okay if they're pirates okay but this is just out of nowhere nobody can explain it he holden bless his heart tells the whole system what they saw he lays out what he knows and lets people draw their own conclusions unfortunately he only has like three data points and conclusions based on a small data set can be very wrong. And Holden's broadcasts help bring an already tense political situation to a boiling point and Mars and the belt go to war. Have we covered the, uh, 
I guess you couldn't say geopolitical situation since it covers multiple planets. It yeah. The the political dynamic of the belt. Uh no. So the the basics are a bunch of people colonized Mars, uh, and evidently, according to the authors, the book The Martian is canon for The Expanse. Oh. So that's interesting. Uh, Matt Damon was the first <laughs> actual Martian. Um, I'm pretty sure his character's name was not Matt Damon, but <laughs> whatever Matt Damon's Martian character name was was the first. Mark Watney. Mark Watney. That's what it was. So uh, Mars, Mars eventually declares independence from Earth, and Earth is butthurt about that. Uh, and well, that's Mars so. Is, I'm just realizing, like, they they specifically compare Mars to Texas a lot. And so you just said, like, declares independence. And I'm like, oh, that's so Texan of them. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And they have a lot of a lot of Texans are among the early settlers. Yeah, so yeah. they're the, a lot of Martians have a weird Texan Martian accent, apparently. Uh, which you heard in, it here, folks. The Texan accent is the future Martian accent. Right. <laughs> Uh, and then there's the belt, uh, which is is kind of the, the resource pool of of, of like the system. It's miners, all the, basically. Yeah, all of the mining uh, materials to to build all these ships and space stations. They grow food out in the belt. Uh, there's a lot of Holden is an ice hauler. They go to Saturn and grab giant chunks of ice out of the rings, and, and hmm. you might. You should probably think, well, gee, Earth's covered in water, right? Why don't we get water from Earth? You have a lot of people living on Mars in the belt, which doesn't have a lot of water. Yeah. And they, they need that water. The other thing is they use it as fuel for their ships. Uh, yeah. They have... Well, and they also use part of the process to get air, right? Yeah, and they, they need to be able to make air as well. The, the ships are, are fusion-powered, but you have to have something to push against, some kind of mass to push against. So uh, they use steam <laughs> and the, steam the fusion spaceship. Yeah, the fusion <laughs> thrust of the ship is is against the superheated steam. Huh. Uh, so their shipping consumes huge amounts of water and they only they actually only hint at that, but interesting. You would need vast quantities of it yeah. uh, to do that. They're, the distances they're traveling yeah. are honestly hard to convey in a podcast uh, <laughs> and even with magical fusion technology it can take weeks yeah. to get from one place to another well and earth has like 30 billion people on it right something like that something like that so you can't just constantly ship stuff from earth out into the universe like you you need that for the 30 billion people that live on earth yeah, honestly, Earth Earth has a lot of problems that this Leviathan Wakes does not well, really yeah. get into. Leviathan but Wakes you... is solely about the belt. I mean, you get a little like hints of Mars and of Earth, but they're just hints. This is all about the belt. Yeah, yeah, we're we're living in space here, so we're we're out. I mean, this is really the frontier. It's yeah. it's kind of the Wild West. It's a little bit lawless. It's it's a little bit chaotic. You won't go to Earth or Mars until the second book in the series. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole lot more. Yeah, you're never planet side. You're never planet side in Leviathan Wakes. Nope. <laughs> Weird to think about. So, Mars and the Belt rely on each other for like ships and supplies and just everything, and now they're at war. And, and they rely on Earth for... And they rely on Earth for so much. There's just a lot of things humans need to stay alive that can only be made on Earth. And that is a major consideration uh, yeah. and a major source of Earth's political power is they control resources no one else has. But on the other hand, Earth has a lot of people to feed and take care of. Mm -hmm. And the vast resources of the solar system are an integral component of that. So there's kind of a, there's this asymmetric resource competition that's yeah. in play that makes it a, it's extremely interesting political dynamic. And, it, and it's an extremely plausible one. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's 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 what makes it so effective that it's just it's just to me at least it's just so believable. Yeah. And that that just you know this it doesn't feel like fantasy. It feels like I'm reading a history book from mm-hmm. a time traveler almost. Yeah. Hmm. So. So let's talk about Miller. Yeah. I love Miller. Um, okay, but first I want to say. Holden keeps finding these clues and he keeps releasing them to the public. And he's like, here's this new clue I found. And that just leads people to like make a different assumption. And the assumptions keep pointing the blame at different people. Like first it's Mars and then it's Earth. And now everybody is embroiled in this huge political and like war situation. Uh, Because Holden, I mean, it, it was kind of on its way there already, but Holden broadcasting it was earth's fault it was mars's fault doesn't help the situation at all there's definitely no consequences there right yeah no that's (laughs) i mean they do a really good job like there are tons of consequences (laughs) yeah it's what what you do matters even if it's a small thing it it can make a very big change as as and holden finds out in a very extreme way Okay, now we can talk about Miller. Miller is a burned out belter cop on a space station. His whole life is lived in the gray spaces between right and wrong. You can sort of imagine how he and Holden might not get along. And they actually, they talk about this a lot in the book, the idea that um, someone who grew up on a planet like Holden did with an atmosphere can never really understand belters who are reliant on a limited shipped in air supply there's like a story in miller's point of view about how somebody was shorting air supply on the on their station in order to like make more money and how like that guy was killed and nobody investigated it because you just that's just a thing you don't do everybody needs air to survive we are not a space species so somebody who acts that way putting their personal gain above the literal survival of other people is just shunted out the airlock goodbye we won't miss you yeah the the ex the extreme emphasis on the environment in the belt because air and water are the most precious things that you have and they're very expensive because you don't have a lot of it and you have to ship it in mm-hmm. and you have to make it you have to recycle it you have to take care of it and a lot of energy is devoted just to maintaining those systems and that's a huge huge part of their life uh and it's it's kind of really saying something that these are these are the things that keep us alive and that we need to take care of them I, I can't imagine how that'd be relevant today. Yeah, that's, that's, they're not trying to say anything here, okay? Definitely they're, no there's commentary no message, here. There's no commentary, nothing. Um, <laughs> but you can't, we can't live, it doesn't matter how good our technology is, we need these things to stay alive. And the only place we can find these things is on Earth. <laughs> or some, you have, Or somewhere, you have to get them. Yeah. I thought, it was, wanna... I thought it was interesting, though, that they make a point of saying Earth is still, I mean, at the beginning of this series anyway, Earth is the only place you can get some stuff. Like, you still need Earth, even in the future when you're living out in space. Yeah, we're, we're not going to replace our home planet anytime soon. And there's a lot of, you can go pretty deep into, you know, speculating what our, what our future technological avenues are. And there's really... There's just no conceivable way that you replace an entire life-giving planet very yeah. easily. Yeah. Uh, and generally, it, it boils down to if you have the technology to truly survive and thrive on another planet, it basically implies that you have the technology to take better care of the one you came from. <laughs> yeah, we hope. Did you want to talk about low gravity here for belters? Too? Oh, Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, one of my favorite themes in in this book and really the whole series is is gravity. Mm. Uh, it it's almost like it's a character itself. Uh, it, it's just 
it's always it's always there it's something that you're you're probably not used to thinking about because we all sure. live in yeah i don't I don't think about my air supply often either. Yeah, you you kind of take it for granted. You you take your air for granted. You take your water for granted. You take your gravity for mm-hmm. granted. That you know, gravity. You drop stuff and it falls. Yeah. You weigh a certain amount. Stuff has weight. Uh, it it affects everything you do, but it's a constant and it's ever present and and it's pretty much always the same. Uh, that's not true if you live in the asteroid belt. How how much gravity you have uh, and how much you grew up with affects you know who you become culturally, biologically, politically. There's a power dynamic there. Mm-hmm. Belters can't really travel to Earth because they grow up in such low gravity, maybe a tenth of what we're used to, that their bodies can't. Wow. Imagine yeah. suddenly weighing ten times as much and trying to walk or breathe. Yeah. You know, it'd be trying to breathe. You know, with a with a truck on your chest that's that's Hmm. what it would be like for belters to come to earth so it makes sense that they they would no longer see it as their home because they literally can't be there and survive the earth would kill them this is a this is a it's a it's a constant uh thing the ships they make gravity by firing their engines so -hmm. if the ship's accelerating you have gravity and Typically, you you accelerate towards your destination, and then halfway through, you flip the ship the other way, and then you start a deceleration burn. Mm-hmm. So you're slowing, you're speeding up half the half the way, and then you're slowing down the final half of the trip. And that way, most of the time, you have a simulated gravity because the ship is always accelerating or decelerating. If the ship loses its engine, then now you're in zero g. And and so characters are always wearing magnetic boots, uh, and the deck plating is is magnetic, so that if suddenly you lose thrust, then you don't just immediately float off the deck. Mm-hmm. But that's a you have to assume that happens at any time. So they're they're always ready for you know gravity for the people who live and work in the belt is almost like this rug that can just get right. pulled out from under right. you at any time. And I mean, imagine living your life such that at any moment you're in zero G with no warning that could happen. It changes how you're going to behave, how you they tend to take very good care of their spaces and keep their tools cleaned up and things like that, because all of a sudden it might all be floating around. Yeah. uh, And bouncing around and and making a mess and causing a hazard and, and. if you live on Earth, you would never think about that. Yeah. But if you grow up in the belt your entire life, it's just automatic. <laughs> you would always be aware of that without even thinking about it. So I, uh, I think that's 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 one of the things I find really interesting and in how detailed and ever present uh, it is throughout all all of the books, the entire series. The show also does an excellent job of showing. Yeah. Uh, low, low, and no gravity situations. Uh, so I think it, it adds an extra dimension to the the already very detailed world building. Hmm. Hmm. I'm just thinking about belters can't go to Earth because it will literally kill them. <laughs> that's wild. Hmm. It it it's. I I know that's also like a big part of all of this. Like what what happens when people start living out in space and who do they become and what what is what is humanity as an idea is it yeah if it's those of us who love on earth and what do we become when we leave and we are right now looking at a future that is we are probably going to become an interplanetary species in our lifetime if not in the next 10 to 20 years hmm. so what's betting on mars it seems very plausible that it's it's going to happen and a return to the moon seems very plausible so the, the question is only when and the when is rapidly becoming soon and how how are we going to change and, and yeah. really what's going to happen once somebody's born somewhere other than the earth and lives their whole life out there and 
yeah, never comes back, Earth won't be their home. And how how does that change them? How does that change us? But I think it it changes how we think about what what are we? Yeah. And and as we change, you know, what what do we continue to call ourselves? And and how do we continue to have something in common with each other if we if we can't even live if you don't even have in the, some spaces the shared experience of gravity and breathing air in common yeah how do you how do you connect with someone yeah that's <laughs> interesting yeah that's how how do you <laughs> i don't know <laughs> we might find out <laughs> <sighs> okay so Miller, burned back, out back cop, <laughs> belter cop Miller on a space station. He is given a job. It's a throwaway job. He's supposed to find Julie Mao and return her to her rich parents. It's a kidnap job. Just one of those things. It's also meant to be the kind of job that's abandoned and never solved. A casualty of the, the rising tensions between Mars and the belt. But Miller is drawn to the mystery of Julie. She is a, a wealthy Earther who gave up everything to be part of the belt. And I think it's interesting that Miller is so fixated on Julie, and Julie is like a connection to the people who first founded the belt, the people from Earth who longed to be out in space and didn't care what they had to give up. They just wanted to be out there and to explore and to experience it. And that's like the people Miller is descended from, basically. So Miller discovers a link between the last ship Julie was on and Holden's crew. Remember Holden? When Miller is fired for complicated reasons that we're not going into in this very short summary, he uses every last favor and dollar to meet up with Holden on Eros, which is another space station. And all their space stations are like Greek names right Ceres and Eros or yeah they're a lot of them are asteroids and these are not made up uh you can find these with a telescope oh Ceres <laughs> okay. is a real a real place Eros is a real place these are all of the asteroids are real wow uh, they're actually in our solar system Ceres is one so of cute. if not the largest asteroid in the belt that um, makes sense it's probably why it's a likely place for settlement. Yeah, okay. Today I learned. <laughs> Miller meets up with Holden, and Holden is on is still on his mission to figure out why those ships were destroyed. He still doesn't know. And Holden is working with the the technically the belt government. The belt doesn't have a cohesive government at all. So it's he's he's working it's complicated. He's working with like the, author the, the authorities. The authorities. The head of the militia, basically. And he's following a lead on Eros. They have a lead to maybe understand why those ships were blown up. So Miller saves Holden's crew in a firefight. And in return, they lead him to what's left of Julie Mao. There has been plenty foreshadowed up to this point, like I talked about earlier. The the blame game bl being played between the planets and the belt, no one taking credit for the destruction of the ships. There's been mentions of disasters on far-off stations. But finding Julie's body is our first real clue to what's going on. She has been infected. Her body is slowly transforming into something. There are tentacles and ooze everywhere apparently it smells bad too oh i'm sure it smells bad yeah <laughs> hard to imagine it wouldn't this is such like a big moment but like there's so much that still has to happen but finding julie's body and what's left of it is is terrifying and strange but they also find a clue to where she came from basically so they have an idea where she might have been infected. Um, and as they're leaving Eros, they're nearly caught in the next stage of whatever has been happening to Julie. People on the station are herded into radiation shelters, and then they are infected with the same thing that got Julie. 
So this whole space station, 1.5 million people are being sacrificed and changed into something for a science experiment. They like intercept a message that says stage three now and it's stage three is infecting this entire station just to see what's what'll happen. What do humans do with technology? Oh, yeah, they use it on each other to see what'll happen. The the answer might not surprise you. (laughs) (laughs) So Miller joins Holden's crew and they all escape Eros by the skin of their teeth and find the ship that Julie was infected on. And on the ship, there is a sample and research notes about what infected her, what is known as the protomolecule. There's also a handy-dandy video explaining its origin. Aliens. No, really. (laughs) Aliens. (laughs) Like two billion years ago, the protomolecule was on a trajectory to hit Earth and destroy the nascent indigenous life, that's us, and would have, except one of Saturn's moons got in the way. (laughs) This is wild. I mean, the fact that it would have hit Earth at all means that these aliens have like really good targeting systems but also the fact that like something got in the way and interfered because as we have talked about before most of what space is is space there's a lot of a lot of emptiness like you look at a model of the solar system and you're like yeah everything looks really close together but that's just not true we just can't comprehend how far apart everything is it's hard to imagine the yeah if you think of the the asteroid belt as being full of asteroids because that's what it is the actual asteroids themselves are nowhere remotely close to each other yeah like you're not you're not going to be you know dodging asteroids you're not as you Han pilot Solo your ship and the millennium belt. falcon yeah dodging it's, not through like that. it's here's an asteroid and it's huge And then maybe tomorrow you'll see another asteroid out the window from really far away. And then a (laughs) week later, you'll get to one that maybe you have to go around, but probably not. Yeah. It's it is slightly more dense than the other spaces of the solar system, but it's still so vast that it's. Yeah. You could probably just fly through it blind Mm -hmm. almost continuously and never hit anything. Yeah. So together with a group of belters, this is the um, belter militia, basically, Miller and Holden destroy the lab that was experimenting with the protomolecule. It turns out that this lab and whoever has been running it, which is a paramilitary group from (laughs) somewhere, (laughs) maybe it's from Earth, maybe it's from everywhere. I don't know. It's it's not explained very well in this book. I'm sure Jeremy knows, but don't tell me. I've only read like the first two books. <laughs> so this lab is responsible for the destruction of the ships at the beginning, which is what began Holden's quest. And this lab is also responsible for the horrible science experiment on Eros, which is currently eating its way through 1.5 million people. There's a part when they are in the lab and the person who has been running the lab is talking to them about the protomolecule and he's like, we had to do it. There's aliens out there who created this two billion years ago. Who knows what they're like now? We have to know what it is. So whatever we do in order to find out what this protomolecule can do is worth it and it's justified. You know, it's, it's a compelling argument. People are very concerned about their survival. And then this guy is going to get arrested and locked up and he'll be able to talk to people and tell them how right he was to run this experiment on 1.5 million people. And it was his duty or whatever. And Miller looks at him and says, that's enough and shoots him. And it's like Holden and Miller have been kind of at odds this whole time just by virtue of like, their personalities and viewpoints. Their moral compasses. Their moral are compasses. <laughs> very differently calibrated. <laughs> yes. And so this moment is so, like, it splits them up. They're going to work together for the rest of this book, but, like, they're never going to get, like, along, really. 
but it's so I I don't know this moment where like Miller looks at a person who has justified a genocide and shoots him and just says this is as far as this goes I don't want to hear anything else this person has to say and on the other hand you just found out some alien life form two billion years ago sent some kind of weapon to annihilate your planet. Yeah. And it was dumb luck that it didn't hit us and that we found it. How far do you go in trying to study and understand what something like that is? And what do you do personally and what does it do to your society? Yeah. Just just knowing that that happened, how does that change things? Yeah. Who knows? It, it, it makes you think, what happens if we do dis- discover pretty conclusive evidence that life in some form lives on some somewhere other than the Earth, even if it's bacteria on Mars? What does that change? How does that yeah. affect all of us individually and, and as... A society just just the knowledge of that even if it's not actively doing anything or actively posing a threat just knowing that it's there yeah how does that change you it's interesting to think about hopefully we don't put <laughs> a million and a half people through a science experiment though and kill them that's seems extreme. you should not of the things of the things you should do to study it i would recommend not doing that yeah let's like just take that off the table and maybe look at some other options hmm so the proto molecule and and thinking about how so much of our culture and life is based on the the basic presumption that we are the only sentient beings and like i mean it's as it's as essential to us as gravity Right. It's our, like our loneliness. Our we're, our loneliness. We're alone in the universe we've been able to observe completely. Yeah. Like no other life exists beyond the planet and as far as we can tell, no sentient life exists beyond us. So I mean we know how much changes once you remove gravity. We know like that we can remove gravity and going out into space that, that we can predict the changes there, but what happens when we find sentient life or <laughs> what doesn't happen, what do we do? It would be nice to imagine we are the, the Star Trek people <laughs> who reach out with open arms and say welcome. But on the other hand, are, is that sentient life going to try to destroy us? <laughs> I think you can also make the argument that, that just the very question is to some extent, slowly driving our species to some level of insanity. Mm-hmm. We cannot comprehend the, the reality of truly being alone in this vast, just enormous expanse. Hey! <laughs> and how could we be the only life that exists yeah. in this? Yeah. And, and, and if we are, then why? And... And I think it's why, you know, we we obsessively study as much as we can about the planets we can get to, mm-hmm. to try to f- specifically to try to find evidence that life could exist somewhere else. And then culturally, we're obsessed with aliens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we want to believe they exist or or we have debates over whether or not they can or can't. Jeremy. The truth is out there. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so we, we just can't. It's a question we can't we can't let go. And yeah. how does that define us? And, and a lot of our, you know, a lot of our stories are built around us finding some kind of answer or at least yeah. finding the next question yeah. to focus on. And... You know, but imagine for a minute, what if it's a thousand years from now and it's still nothing? It's just us alone on this planet. There's nothing else out there. And even with another thousand years of technology, we found nothing. Yeah. How disappointing might that be? 
it just feels like as a species we desperately do not want to be the only ones yeah i guess that's part of what drives exploration and especially as people look to traveling interstellarly (laughs) to interstellar travel it's like there will always be people who will go no matter the risk because they want they want to know they want to take the risk and 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 every day you think maybe tomorrow you know maybe tomorrow we'll find something and that's so intrinsic to humans astronauts are the ultimate in extroverts <laughs> i want to find an alien and i want to talk to it <laughs> like who who wants to meet an alien life form <laughs> Maybe we all do, but how could you not be terrified? I mean, it's it's a. How can you even imagine? I mean, it's, what, it's what so far beyond everything we know. It's what? it's hard. Like we can imagine everything, right? We can imagine as much as our imaginations will let us, but that doesn't mean that we can imagine the reality. You know. Even if you find something as small as a, a fossilized microbe on Mars. What does that mean? What does that change? How do you how do you change your life just knowing something lived somewhere else on this planet before we were here to ask? Kind of gives me the possible. shivers. I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like we have to. We almost want we want it to happen because we just yeah. We're so intensely curious that we just you know if there's a big red button we have to push it. We have to know what's out there and what will happen and that's another terry pratchett quote from a book you haven't read yet but it's about um if you painted a sign that said do not push this button it will end the world the paint wouldn't have time to dry before somebody had pushed the button (laughs) yeah that's it says something though that we're we have a lot of people who are truly willing to risk it all yeah. in order to make that kind of discovery and and they and it's a conscious choice they know that they know what's at stake and they're willing yeah. to do it because that's how powerful that drive is to know and and to see it with your own eyes to actually be there mm-hmm. and i don't know that's that's amazing it's it's also terrifying yeah absolutely because it's <laughs> Look at what we're willing to do. This is definitely not a theme in the entire series. No, no, clearly. Yeah. Clearly, this is just us spitballing, <laughs> not something you've been thinking about for eight books. Okay. So the lab has been destroyed, and there's the protomolecule sample has been secured. They now have to turn their attention back to eros which is like stuff is happening on eros (laughs) that should not be happening it shouldn't just no matter what you shouldn't yeah it shouldn't be happening so there's there's still the wars going on everyone is being remarkably restrained nobody has blown up another planet yet which we have talked about why because they're so interconnected they're so reliant on each other that if you destroy Earth, eventually Mars and the belt will die, and the belt has nothing to lose, and Mars has the best ships and the best navy, space navy. What do you call a space navy? I, they just call it their navy, but okay, it's a it's a fair their space navy. It's a fair question though. Um, <laughs> what what do you what do you call it when? It's a navy, but it's in space. Yeah, yeah. Na- naval tends to speak to water, say water to me. But anyway, so it- it's like we're teetering on the brink of mutually assured destruction between what there is of humanity. And then there's also this alien threat looming. <laughs> um, and so Miller and Holden race to destroy Eros before a government can claim it to use against their enemies or take it and say we'll just we'll definitely take care of this and then do something nefarious with it and so i mean holden and miller had this huge falling out in the lab but they and they disagree on a lot but in this 
they are finally in agreement. They have to destroy Eros and this horrible science experiment. So Miller lands bombs on Eros and Holden holds off the approaching ships. But before they can blow it to smithereens, Eros begins to move on its own. And they specifically describe it as it like it looks like it jumps sideways to get out of the way of a rocket or something. And everybody who sees it is like stunned because it did something that looked physically impossible. Like all the laws of the universe should have said, you can't do that with a huge hunk of rock. It just shouldn't happen. I'm just imagining seeing like a huge, like seeing the moon jump just like sideways. Yeah. Then you'd get like the idea of what that felt like for them. It's it's truly these typical asteroids are, are truly enormous. And they they talk about how they when they convert them into space stations, they strap really huge, powerful engines to them and spin them. Mm-hmm. And that produces a, a low level the of gravity. spin gravity. Yeah. Hm. And and it and they describe it as it, it takes years to yeah. spin up. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's with the the. The most powerful and advanced technology humanity has, and it takes them years to spin it, even a even a low amount, just to have a trivial amount of gravity. And and this thing just jumps almost instantaneously. T- takes a little hop sideways. S- seemingly no effort, and yeah. and it's the energy required to do that is just beyond imagination. How how could anything? Yeah. Just do that. Yeah. I think it, actually that's interesting. That's like we talked about how a lot of science fiction seems like fantasy because it's so unimaginable. And that's like this moment for them. It's like they're seeing magic come to life or like a fantasy novel come to life. And then they have to like sit down and reassure themselves like, no, actually, it's that's technically possible. But for a second. Yeah. Imagine if instead of it's a, you know, instead of a, a, a deity reaching down from the heavens and just moving a mountain Mm -hmm. it's no that's literally physically possible if you have the technology to do it and aliens are doing it right now in your backyard yeah would you be freaked out yeah i would (laughs) so eros the space station is moving and it seems whatever has been happening in Eros, whatever the protomolecule science experiment with 1.5 million people has turned into, is heading for Earth, seeking to uh, maybe finally finish its two-billion-year-old mission of destroying all life. And Miller, stuck on this space station made of nightmares, carting a bomb around, comes to a disturbing realization. The protomolecule was meant to mutate single-celled organisms, and faced with the complexity of the human body, it had to adapt, and it has gradually, thankfully it had like 1.5 million people to practice on, Um, and somewhere in the writhing mass of human soup that is Eros now, Julie Mao's mind is still alive. And she's unaware of what she's doing, but she's taking Eros, she's driving the protomolecule and Eros home to Earth. No stakes at all. No stakes. It's fine. So Holden. Just, just for reference, an asteroid the size of Eros hitting Earth would be an extinction level event. It, yeah. it would probably render the planet uninhabitable, mm-hmm. which let would... let alone releasing this protomolecule alien soup thing. Yeah, even like... if you ignore what the protomolecule itself can do, just a rock that large hitting the Earth basically would destroy all human life in the entire solar system. Yeah. So it's it's bad L- if they like don't we stop said, it. Like we said, no stakes at all. <laughs> so. Holden staves off the entirety of Earth's missile defense systems 
so that Miller can finish the job he started so long ago so that Miller can find Julie Mao. And he does. He finds her body and wakes her up and convinces what remains of her not to crash into Earth. But she has to go somewhere. She's driving Eros, a writhing mass of proto-humanity, and it needs a destination. She's not just going to park it somewhere. Jokingly, Holden suggests they can take it to Venus. No one likes that planet anyway. (sighs) So at the end, Eros crashes into Venus. (laughs) And the proto-molecule doesn't just stop. It continues its evolution and begins building crystal towers on Venus and who knows what else. No one knows what the aliens from two billion years ago had hoped to achieve, but now it seems maybe they'll find out. And if you read the rest of the series, uh, you will find out. (laughs) So the war is over now that they have figured out who blew up the ships and where the protomolecule came from and where it's gone and all this stuff. But there's still, I mean, they didn't solve the problems. They just removed the immediate reason for fighting. And there's still, there's a remaining sample of the protomolecule to consider. Um, Not whatever's happening on Venus, but like an original sample is still in not Holden's possession anymore. It's in the belt's possession. (sighs) So, I mean, this is just like a massive setup. There's... The immediate danger has passed, but there's so much more that's clearly just waiting to happen. Yeah, the if you're a fan of setups and payoffs as a storytelling device, you're going to love The Expanse. Yeah, because they do. Everything's a setup, and everything gets a payoff. And it's also... If you're familiar with the film concept of the MacGuffin, mm-hmm. so, you know, the something the characters are trying to get to or obtain or something like that, and it, it drives the plot, but it's what it actually is never matters. It matter. It's a, yeah. you got to find the briefcase because there's some mm-hmm. thing in the briefcase and that thing's important, but it doesn't actually matter why. There, there are no MacGuffins in The Expanse. They're all things that matter and are, are important. And I, I like that. That's It's very... They really th- put a lot of thought yeah. into every part of the story informs and connects with every other part. Everything happens as a consequence of the world. Yeah. The way the world's constructed causes people to be this, a way they are, causes things yeah. to happen the way they are. That's that's good. There are a lot of books and series and movies and stuff that will take a concept and just look at the surface level of it and not go like a level deeper and a level deeper to be like, okay, but if this surface level is true, that means A, B, C, D about the way the rest of the world works. But The Expanse does that really well. It does really good world building and considering like what would come next after this? Yeah, all of the all of the questions that you might have at the end of this book. Don't worry, <laughs> you will have different questions by the time you get to the end of the rest of the series. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they will explore a whole lot of stuff. I will. So the the final book, the ninth book, is coming out soon. Maybe at the end of this year. Yeah. There's no official date yet. Yeah. I do want to say this. I actually have a hard time reading these books because they're so dense. Like so much stuff happens and it tells you literally everything that's going on. And it's it's like a slog for me sometimes to get through. That's why I, I like I've read the second book. And I think that's it because it's just so, for me, it's not, I know like the technology and stuff really appeals to you and really draws you in. But to me, it's just like, why are we talking about magnetic boots for the 12th time? Like, It's because they're important. (laughs) uh, Don't worry, there are setups there too. 
of course there are. <laughs> Everything's a setup. Everything's a setup. Well, anyway, they're good. I just, I just have so many other books to read. There is a lot of stuff that happens and it is it's a bit of a commitment to read the whole thing because there's eight books now and five seasons of uh an an extremely well done tv show so if if you want to get your feet wet without committing to reading all the books um the series is fantastic but if you like the show there's a good chance you'll love the books too if you can't tell it's it's this is one of my favorite sci-fi series yeah. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Do you have anything else you would like to recommend like this? Uh, well, I had, I had kind of one more. Oh yeah. What else do you have? Quick thing that that's just just overall one of my, you know, being an avid science fiction reader, one of the things that I really love about the Expanse is that space is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Space is really dangerous all the time and it it constantly reminds you of that Uh, even you have a a technologically sophisticated society with people who spend their entire lives working in space it's still dangerous all the time and that affects basically everything they do and and who they are anything anything can go wrong at any time Mm you you might get attacked by space pirates literally your fusion reactor might explode. You, your ship might depressurize. Should have spent more on maintenance. That's you know, uh, it's it's a bit of a, it, it's a hard lifestyle, and the people of the belt now generations into living there didn't necessarily choose it for themselves, mm-hmm. and then you see people voluntarily choose it. People from Earth and Mars right. choose yeah. this extremely rough lifestyle but at no point do you really ever feel that that safe things can break on your ships and you can be attacked and the fact that it's set in space really matters and it and it doesn't really work if it's set anywhere else and i think that's a contrast to a lot of other sci-fi where yeah we're going at warp speed between planets gravity always works mm-hmm. nobody ever needs to wear a space suit yeah like it, we never worry about air we never worry about yeah you you could sometimes it seems like you, you could tell the same story and it's like well they just took an intercontinental flight yeah um right. the fact that they're in space cool it's a neat setting uh, but they basically have magic that's not the case mm-hmm. in the expanse the fact that you're in space completely changes what you do and how you do it and there is nothing to compare it to. It is a completely different environment than anything else yeah. humans can experience. And that's extremely important to the story. Uh, and so I, I think that's that's really one of my favorite things. I wrote here, in the expanse, the many hazards of space are not only a part of your daily life, but also a common way that it ends. Yeah. And that's, if you're going to live in space and if we in, if we as a species are going to choose to inhabit space that is something that we are going to have to come to terms with if you're not willing to die there then you're not ready to live there hmm. i really love this book yeah no that's good uh oh yeah uh yeah oh, what gosh. um i like i like to recommend stuff at the end just if you want more stuff like this then i Honestly, I I, th- I think you've already done a podcast on one of these, but uh, honestly, I would recommend Becky Chambers. Oh, yes. I did The Wayfarers. Uh, yeah. Very, very different story. Yeah. But a similarly detailed and lived in world. Yes. Um, again, the fact that you live in space absolutely matters space is dangerous yeah she does a good job of that um so it's a very there's some similarities there but it is is otherwise a very different story she's very her books are very character driven they're about the characters not about like events happening it's about what happens when you put different kinds of people together and just let them interact yeah 
And I think to, I think she also has a, a degree of optimism. Yes. That a lot of sci-fi can be pretty intense and challenging, particularly as it turns its yeah. lens on on humanity as it is now, very often pointing out all of the things that we do wrong. And and I think Becky Chambers does a good job of of pointing out all the things that we do right as a species yeah. because we're not all bad. We we do a lot of good yeah. things too, and She's we're going good. to take those with us. Yeah. She's a good, um, I think I recommended Star Trek to go along with Wayfarers because they have that same heart of like, humans are good, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. We can do good and we can be good. And we can strive to, to be better. Yeah. And and that's that's a process that that never ends. Um, but it's you know, there's there's always hope uh, to be better than we are now. The other one I was going to recommend was Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, yeah. which you have also read. But it is very similar in like it, it starts off in modern day and is like, here's our technology. Here's how we would survive if we were suddenly like had to live in space. And then here's what would happen 5000 years in the future following from this. It's very interesting. Um, Anything else? Uh, I think that's all I got. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for joining me. Thanks, this was fun. Okay. I love this book. I know. <laughs> uh, join me next time to hear about Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. If you have any comments or questions, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade, and you can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon. Bye. So I should just go. Say here is the go summary. On, go on for the yeah, summary? Yeah. Should I say here is the summary? Follow your heart. Well, you can cut it out if you don't want. It's, exactly. I just won't. I won't, I won't say it. <laughs>